Well, it's so great to have you here this morning and kind of full house. I'm so glad we uh, voted on the recent expansion here in the next uh, several months. But it's so good to have you here this morning. I know many of you probably are here with family. Uh, we're so grateful that you're here with us again. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages here this morning. And, of course, we're here to... To, to basically celebrate the resurrection. But what's ironic about that is every Sunday we come here and celebrate the resurrection. It's just today's a special day. The rest of the world just kind of looks in on our celebration, and we're so grateful for that. So Matthew chapter 27, we're continuing the series, Jesus Like No Other. And we began this journey with him and his miraculous birth. How he came, literally think about this. It wasn't a baby who just showed up in Bethlehem. Literally, the Lord God sent his son to this world. He left heaven's domain to come and dwell with us. And so it wasn't just some baby showing up in Bethlehem. It was God's son showing up in Bethlehem. And then we began to look uh, into Jesus's life as a 12-year-old. Now, even at age of 12, he knew what his mission was when it came to this world and what he came to do. Then we come to his public ministry. And, and, and over the last several weeks, we've been looking at some of the sayings that he said, some of the things he said over and over over again to really tell us more about the mission that he was on. And then last week, we come to the point of his death. And we saw in his death that that death surrounds everything with not only the mission that he had from his father, but also the love that he has for us. And today, I want us to look at the victory that came from the death all the way to the resurrection. Now, when you think about it, the resurrection, the crucifixion, I mean, without the crucifixion, without the resurrection, the crucifixion would have been a very sad story. How many of you would agree with that? Think about that. Without the resurrection. But the fact is, he did rise again. There's a hymn that says it this way. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to be one of those saints who will reign with him. And then it says, he arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Just like what we were singing here just a moment ago. Look at the introduction there on your outline. There are many things about Jesus that sets him apart from all others, including his resurrection from the dead. His victorious resurrection over death ensures those who are his followers will have victory over death. How many of you are grateful for that? Victory over death. Think about that. Think about that. Uh, eternity with God. Now, before we discuss the why to the resurrection, why it was possible, why it was all there, why it needed to happen in the way it did, I want us to actually look at the account. So if you look at Matthew chapter 27, have a way of looking at God's word. Look at verse 62. It says, on the next day which followed, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Now, get the scene here. We've got all the people who were responsible for his execution on the cross. They've come together. And basically, the Pharisees, the religious, said this, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, now that deceiver said, After three days, I will rise. They're basically saying there's something else to the story. It's not enough that you put him to death. We want to make sure what he said does not happen. 
Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Now think about what they're trying to say here. They want Jesus gone. They don't want any thought of him after his, after his crucifixion. They don't want anyone thinking about him. They don't want this, this the, the rumor to come out that he rose from the dead because the body was stolen. They were ready to put to death Jesus in everyone's mind. They wanted him to go away. Pilate said to them in verse 65, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. But then look at chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the way Scripture writes itself. I love the fact that we've got an angel who basically kind of shows up. Uh, the, the man had a plan. They were going to take care of it themselves. But this angel shows up, rolls away the stone, and just sits there and waits on the ladies to show up. Now, to me, that, that's a little humorous, I think. But he's just sitting there. And, and here's what happens next. His countenance was like, like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They fainted. But the angel answered and said to the women. Now notice the women didn't faint. It was the men who fainted. <laughs> and the angel said to the women, don't be afraid for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he has risen as he said Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples the word. Now, now this is something that I think is really cute in the story. Now, I want you to think about it. The last thing the angel heard from heaven, he was sent here, was to go and basically give this report to these ladies. Tell these ladies, you go tell the disciples that where to meet them. But Jesus, it's almost like he couldn't contain himself. He had to reveal himself because that's the last thing that, that, that was said. And so look at verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, Jesus met them. Now, can you imagine? He's the, the most brutal death you could ever imagine. The Bible literally says he was beaten, unre he was unrecognizable. And all of a sudden, he's showing up there, not as a horrifying person who's been beat, but he comes before them. We know he's probably in his resurrected body, and he's standing there before them. And Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Boy, what a powerful story. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so far we've seen the account of the resurrection. Now, I want you to see what Paul says about the resurrection. He's basically giving credence to the fact that it happened. And he's given us proof here. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received in which you stand 
by which you are saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you first of all, which I also received. He's saying there are, there are these reports, I'm getting ready to tell you, I've been told these things, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and that on the third day he arose according to the scriptures. Now that's the gospel in and of itself. But here's the evidence. And that he was buried, rose again on the third day, verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, of course that would be Peter, then by the twelve. And that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. There were 500, 500, about a group this size, who saw them with their, their own eyes. And he basically says, of whom the greater part remain to this day. Some of those people that were there of the 500, some of them passed on. But there's many that are still here today. You can talk to them about it. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James. Now, I don't know about you, but probably out of all the people mentioned here, James is the one that I'm most intrigued with that, that basically saw Jesus. James was the half-brother of Jesus. James was the one everyone, I mean, Jesus was the one everyone wanted to be in the family, basically. I mean, he was the good kid. He was the golden child, right? James was in the family, and all of a sudden, James is someone who will put his life on the line for the cause of the gospel, and he was there. I mean, it's amazing when you see all the evidence that surrounds the tomb. He wasn't even a believer till after the resurrection. And so we see this. And then it says he was seen by all the apostles. And then in verse 8, Paul says, I even saw him. I even saw him. Boy, what, 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 what uh, evidence that we have here in Scripture. Now, why is that important? Here's the reason. All Christian faith basically relies on the resurrection. It's all about a resurrection. If there's no resurrection, Paul says, if you keep reading here, our faith is in vain. It means nothing. But there is the resurrection. So look on your outline. What does Jesus' resurrection mean? Number one, he is who he claimed to be. Jesus, think about it. We've already looked at some of these things. He made some pretty outrageous claims when he was here on earth. He said things like, basically, I'm God. In the I am passages, those passages we looked at, there's about eight of them. You know what he was saying in that? He was equating himself as God. He's basically saying, I am God. He said this on occasion. When you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Boy, that's bold to say that. And then he even said, I am the Savior of the world. From there, he went on at the tomb of Lazarus, as, as Wesley just read. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, I want you to think about what that means. He doesn't, he, he's not just saying, I'm going to resurrect myself. He's basically saying, that's who I am. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Think about that. And then he says this, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. There is our victory over death, and it comes through him. He even said this, and we saw this some weeks ago. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. How many of you heard that from someone lately? Hey, if you want the way to abundant living, if you want eternal life, if you want the best way, it'll come through me. Think about how bold that is. And then he says, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He, think about the boldness he's here. Jesus was either who he says he was, or he was the biggest liar who ever was. But his resurrection, I believe, brings claim that he was who he says he was. Next, what does Jesus' resurrection mean? He is who he claimed to be. But secondly, he has the power he claimed to have. I want you to look here at this verse in John chapter 10. Jesus said this. 
No one takes it from me. Now, what he's talking about is his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. Think about it. Jesus is the only person who, who basically said he would be born into this world. He's also the only person who basically ever said, I'm the one who will decide when I die. I decided when I came into this world, I will decide when I die. And we find that even in the scriptures. He says, I have the power to lay it down. That's what he did at his birth. And I have the power to take it back up again. But here, look at chapter 27, if you happen to be there. Listen to what verse 50 says. Jesus has hung on a cross for some hours now. He said many different things, but this is the closing moments of him on the cross. In verse 50, it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And the Bible says, and he yielded up his spirit. He literally gave up his life. He's the one who laid it down. And then here's what happened when, it, when, it, when, it, when he did. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. How many of you would have been pretty awesome to see that? He says what he says and then you look around and you begin to see the earth is shaking. It affected him so much that even the centurion looked up and said, this man must be the son of God. He could literally mean, this guy must have been God. That's what the terminology really means. But then you continue down this. And it says, and the graves were open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now think about that. There's literally, at this moment, people are coming out of their graves. And Esther... Think about it. She died 20 years ago. She's now walking the streets. Can you imagine? That would freak you out, wouldn't it? And all of a sudden, we begin to see these things, these abnormal things begin to happen. Verse 53, they're coming out of the graves after his resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly in saying, truly, this man was the son of God. You know what they were saying? Truly, this man is who he says he was. Truly, he is that one. Next, Jesus' resurrection also means he does what he promised to do. Now, again, I want you to think about this. There's, a, there's some humor related to the resurrection story. Can you imagine being the one who basically said he must die? And all of a sudden, you beat him to death. I mean, you literally could have beat him to death. Most men couldn't have withstood the beating that he took. He was mocked. I mean, everything. I mean, and, and, and then he was hung on a cross. Uh, they, they verified he was dead. And then three days later, all of a sudden, he's walking through the very streets there where you are. Can you imagine? I mean, this is just me just thinking about Jesus and just a little sanctified uh, uh, imagination. But can you imagine Jesus walking by some of them saying, what's up? I mean, think about that. They put him to death. They think it's done. They, they got rid of their problem. Here I am. Hi, y'all. <laughs> oh, that's right. He's not from the South. But anyway, <laughs> but the point is the fact that he did it. Now, Jesus said this speaking of himself in Mark chapter 10. He says, and they will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. But the third day, he will rise again. He was speaking of himself. Next why does Jesus' resurrection matter? How does Jesus' resurrection affect you personally? And that's really the key to the gospel. How it affects us. 
Number one, and this is a great thing, your past can be erased. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. You can if you want. My hand will be raised. But how many of you have a past? How many of you have a tough past? How many of you have those things back there that you really want one of those things mentioned here today? And we all have a past. And the point is this, that Jesus came, listen, and died and was resurrected and had victory over death to help us deal with our past. The things that everyone could hold us accountable for. The thing God himself would hold us accountable for. He came to deal with that. And that's the good news. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. This is the last place I'll have you turn. In Philippians chapter 3. I think many of us in this room, if we could do, have a do-over, we would welcome that. I'm convinced that grandparents have a do-over. I really do. I, I really thought... I messed my kids up, and I'm still unsure at times. <laughs> but, but it's one of those things where you have children, and, and you love them, and you want to do everything. But let's face it, we make a lot of mistakes with our kids, don't we? And, and, and we have regrets, and they tell us what they regretted that we did. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. But then, all of a sudden, we're given the blessing of grandchildren. And grandchildren come in, and we get a do-over. And we get another shot at it, Right? But life has a do-over with Jesus. There's a possibility that I can, because of my past and all those things that haunt me, those things that bring shame into my life, that bring guilt into my life, Jesus is saying, I am willing to take that on. And he took it on there on the cross for me, for you, if we call out to him. He did it exactly that. I want you to think about what Colossians chapter 2, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 2.14, it says this. Jesus is talking about what he did, his mission, part of it. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Now, those requirements were the fact that we would keep the law. How many of you broke the law pretty early in life? I guarantee you, if you reached the age of two, you, did, you destroyed the law. Okay, all right? And the fact is, we carry the weight of that. He wiped it out, all that that was held out against us. And he's taken it out of the way. How did he do it? He nailed it to the cross. He took it on on our behalf. And this is God's pardon program. He nailed it to the cross. He paid for our guilt. We couldn't pay it. He did it. Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross so that we will quit nailing ourselves to the cross. He did that on our behalf. We don't have to go around with this guilt any longer. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says this. Many of you are familiar with this verse. He says, there is therefore. He's just got through telling us all that Christ has done. If you look at the first part of Romans, it says, all have sinned. <laughs> Every one of us has blown it. And then he talks about God's provision through his son. And then we get to chapter 8, and this is a beautiful chapter. It starts this way. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation means judged guilty. We are no longer, think about what Jesus did. We are no longer judged guilty before God. That's what he did. That's what the death, burial, and resurrection was all about. But the provision was found in whom? Christ Jesus. It's only through him. The only way we're made acceptable before God is through him. So look at Philippians 3, verse 7. Paul's basically saying when Jesus came 
My world was turned upside down. Here's what he says. But what things were gained to me, those things that I held dear, those things that I was working towards, those things that meant the world to me, he says, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's basically saying, I can't get enough of what he's done on my behalf. I want to know more. I want to understand my salvation even more. And then he says this, for, I, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Everything that went, meant so much to me before, my pursuits, my goals, what I thought would make me successful, all those things don't mean anything to me. How do we know? Because of what he says now. He says, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. You know what Paul thought? Paul was a great Pharisee. If you were to go back, the Pharisees believed somehow they could make themselves righteous before God. Somehow they believed the life that they chose to live would make them acceptable before God. They literally believed they could do it without Jesus. That was his pursuit. He wasn't a bad guy. He was just misled. And all of a sudden, he's moving to that end for his own righteousness. But what, here's what he says. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I came to the conclusion, Paul is saying, I couldn't do it myself. Jesus had to do it on my behalf. And boy, did he get my attention. You remember the story, the road to Damascus? All of a sudden, you see his life change. So, how does Jesus' resurrection affect you personally? Well, he deals with your past, but he's also your present. Your present can be handled. How many of you agree that much of life can be really tough? Recently, I've been dealing with a loved one in my life, and there was a moment in her life recently where just a moment changed her life forever life became even tougher. Life became tougher. And, and I'm here to tell you that there's much of life that's that way. There's a lot of life that we feel. There's so much of life that's out of our control. There's so much that, that, that we're powerless to change, powerless to, to, to maybe get out of debt, to break a habit, to powerless to manage our time and our schedule. And we feel like there's always uncertainty there in front of us. But you know what God offers us through Jesus? that our present can be handled. Y'all, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how lost people live this life. I don't understand how they can live a life apart from faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Because this is a pretty messed up world, I'm just going to tell you. And I tell you, I think it all relies on him. So, so what what's, what's Paul say about that? Well, look at Philippians 3, verse 10. He says that I may know him. That word know is a very interesting word in Scripture. It literally means, it's not just knowing facts. A lot of us know facts about Jesus. We've known facts about Jesus since we were little. This word means experiential knowledge. Experiential knowledge. I have experienced him in some way. It means the idea of seeking to understand. Seeking to understand. Did you know that the Bible tells me that I need to have that about my wife? I need to seek to understand her. That's what it says. The Bible says also Paul's telling us, I need to seek to understand God, the heart of God. Now, will we understand everything about God? No, just like men won't ever understand everything about women. But the point is, the point is we're on that road to pursuing God and the knowledge of God. The word also means to reflect, to reflect on another. 
to get our eyes off ourselves, to get our eyes off the things that are present, that are constantly coming before us, and to reflect on his goodness, his goodness. That's what he's talking about here. And then he says, not only that, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That, not that I've already attained or am already perfected. How many of you are glad he put that in there? No one's arrived. That's what he's saying. I haven't arrived. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. How did he lay hold of him? He laid hold of him by offering salvation, and Paul took it. And God was laying hold of him through Jesus. And now Paul's saying, I want to lay hold of him. There's a joint connection of a relationship here. So we see that clearly. But when it comes to death, I think everyone has ideas about what that is. There's a lot written on it. There's movies made about it. But there was a group of children that was asked what they believed about death. Gilda, age eight, said this. When you die, they put you in a box and bury you in the ground because you don't look so good anymore. <laughs> Marcia, age nine, said, when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven, I guess, unless your teacher's there too. And then Stephanie, age nine, doctors help you not to die so you can pay them their bill. <laughs> the fact is, everyone wants to know what happens after this. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He's talking about those who've received Jesus. He's talking about those who are on the pursuit of knowing him and their life has been turned around as a result. Verse 24, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. How many of you are glad that's part of the deal? That's a good deal, isn't it? According to the work by which he is able even to subdue all things to him. You know what that last part means? It means it's a done deal. The, the God who hung the universe, the God who empowered him to overcome death, is the same God who's going to make this happen for you. That's what he's saying in that last part. So Jesus' resurrection assures us that we as believers have a future after death. So look at your outline next. How does the resurrection really matter or not matter? And here it is in our attempts. Paul said this. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. It's in the context of what our salvation is. Paul thought at one time that literally he could work his way to make himself acceptable before God. But let me tell you, we're doing the same thing, many of us. How do we do it? By attempt, attempting salvation by sincerity. A lot of people believe it's, it's really not important what you believe as long as you're what? Sincere. How many of you, and I've said this before, have been sincerely wrong before? Yeah. There's going to be a lot of people who are sincerely wrong in hell. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but this is what the Bible says. How about this? Attempt, attempting salvation by service. The Bible even says it. Jesus said in the most famous sermon ever, he said, you did this in my name. You did this in my name, but I never knew you. He's talking about that. Attempting salvation by subtraction. Many people say, well, I quit doing this. I don't do this anymore. And I tried to do that. That's not where salvation shows up. Attempting by ritual. Well, I got baptized. I took commun communion. I even go to church. I'm, I'm here on Easter. <laughs> Attempting salvation by heritage. 
A lot of you have a heritage. You should be proud of a legacy that's been handed down to you, a legacy of faith. But let me just tell you this. It doesn't matter how sincere grandma was and how much she loved the Lord. Doesn't matter if it was passed down to your mom and she's just like grandma. If it didn't get passed down to you and your faith is not dynamic and it's not a faith that's seeking God first and repentance and all that, then you're mistaken. And then attempting salvation by comparison. Here's what that looks like. I'm just as good as anybody else at that church. I'm just as good as any of them. But how does Jesus' resurrection matter? Not by attempting, but by accepting. How does that happen? How, how do we do that? Well, it begins, look on your outline, accepting salvation by your repentance. The Bible says, repent and be converted. Why? That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then also accepting salvation by God's provision. provision. You see, the resurrection of Jesus took care of our greatest needs. Our sin problem, our guilt and shame problem, our fear problem about the future, and even what we're dealing with here today. I'd like to invite you to bow with me, if you will. Father, we just come to you right now, and Lord, we know that we're here to celebrate the resurrection, and Father, I don't know. There may be someone here today that maybe they've really never understood what Easter really meant. Father, I pray for the one that's here that maybe they're not so sure about their relationship with you through your son, Jesus. Maybe they didn't ever turn their life over to you, Father, through your son. Father, I just pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they've never come to terms about what resurrection literally means, I pray today will be the day. Father, I pray for that one that's here. Maybe they're struggling with life today. There's just things that are overcoming them. It's overwhelming them, and they don't know where to turn. Father, I thank you that there's a God that not only provides eternal life, but can supply us with abundant life here. Doesn't mean everything will be perfect. It just means you'll be right there in the center of it, offering us hope. And Father, I just thank you for the future. We thank you that your resurrection literally means that one day we too will be resurrected. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing with us?